We're in sec, uh, 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter 2, starting in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 20. Any fans of the Twilight Zone? Twilight Zone used to really freak me out. Not the show itself, but the feeling that I had that at any moment I could, without warning, enter the Twilight Zone. The show was entertaining, but I thought it was real as a kid. You remember the little dialogue that Rod Serling used to do? Another dimension, dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of the imagination. That's the signpost up ahead, your next stop, the Twilight Zone. I hate to admit it, but I sometimes get a similar feeling as a Christian. Not the Twilight Zone I'm concerned about. It's what you might call the Tribulation Zone. It's that strange dimension you enter without warning in which your world turns upside down with difficulties and dilemmas, troubles and tragedies, problems and pain. That's the signpost up ahead, and it says suffering. Our text would be a great monologue to describe this tribulation zone. Paul used several words to describe what you can expect as a Christian in this world. In verse 14, suffered is the same word the writers of the Gospels use to describe the sufferings of Jesus. In verse 15, persecuted is a word that means driven out and rejected. Contrary is used to describe winds that blow against a ship to hinder its progress. In verse 18, hindered describes a road broken up before you, rendering it, uh, rendering it impassable. And then in verse 3 of chapter 3, we won't get there tonight, but he mentions afflictions, and that is in particular pressure from certain circumstances. You're going to enter this zone a lot. One of the first things the Apostle Paul explained to new believers was that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And so we should at least follow Paul's example and let people know that in the world you will have tribulation. You know, one of the things that uh, is a, a problem for people who hear the gospel and respond to it is that the cares of this world come and steal the seed away. And so we have at least an obligation to be upfront with people and let them know that the Christian life uh, is going to be a life in which you have a certain amount of tribulation. Jesus said we would. Paul said we would. The fact that perhaps we live in better circumstances than most Christians not only in the rest of the world, but for all of history, um, I think softens us sometimes. And when troubles come and sufferings come, we're not really spiritually ready for them. They knock us down a little bit too quickly. And so we, we want to be talking about this and have a, a theology of suffering so that we understand that it's our lot in life. Now understand, we're talking about tribulation in general, not the great tribulation that is coming upon the entire planet at the end of the age. Keep those separate. Now you receive aid in your tribulation, spiritual aid from at least three sources, and that's what these verses are about as we close out chapter 2. And the first thing you have is the empowering of the scriptures to aid you during your tribulations. In verse 13, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And so we learn here that the Thessalonians both received and they welcomed God's word. Obviously, received means that they heard it preached, 
and welcomed means that they accepted it into their hearts. And so there was a transfer from the hearing to the heart. We want to always ask ourselves if we're doing that, or are we transferring God's Word from the hearing to the heart? Uh, are we making application of God's Word? You may have noticed that on Sunday mornings, more often than not now, we're having a time at the end of the study, uh, kind of an extended time of, I don't know what to call it, reflection or response or whatever, where uh, we're encouraging folks to think about what the Lord has shown them during the message and to pray it through and to bring it into our hearts uh, to, to make that transfer stick. Um, you know, w w during the men's study this morning, one of the brothers was uh, texting me uh, about some things that Gino was saying, how it was convicting him, and, and I said, that's good, you know, do something about it. Uh, and, and so we, we want to have that transfer. Um, you're told how to make that transfer mostly in the last word of the verse where it says to believe, because if you believe, then God's Word will effectively work in you. God's Word has within it the power to accomplish what it commands. We, we like to remind people about this all the time. God's Word is or it has within it His enabling. We as an analytical Western culture, we like to always ask, well, how do we do that? So we read something in the Scripture, be, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit, for example, and, and our immediate thing is, okay, I want to do that. What are the five things or the 10 things or the 12 things or the 200 things that I need to do in order for that to be true? Uh, and I'm not saying there's nothing that we have to do. You know, we don't portray just a let go and let God attitude in everything. Uh, but at the same time, we need to remember that when you read the Scripture, it, it, God is telling you things that are already true, that are already possible, uh, that you just need to accept. A lot of times people come in for different counseling in different areas of their life, and they say, well, I, I, you know, I, I see what it says about marriage and family and all these things. I don't know how to do it. A lot of times there's not so much a how-to as to believe that you're able to do it because God says to do it. There's, I can't tell you how to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. I can only tell you that you can do it because Jesus told you to do it. I can't tell women how to submit to their husbands because, and you know, when you get into the house, it all becomes so mechanical. And all of us know that you can go through life very mechanically and never get the heart of things. And, uh, you know, I suppose outward obedience is better than no obedience at all, but we want a heart obedience. And so we have to come to the understanding that with a wonder, uh, even, you know, as children, that when God tells us to do something, He empowers us to do it. Jesus once commanded a crippled man to stretch out his hand, the very thing that the man could not do. He said, stretch out your hand. He believed the Word of God, and he was empowered to do it all at the same time, and he was made whole. And so I think that's what God is telling us a lot in his Word. We need to approach it like the man with the withered or the crippled hand. And rather than say, well, that's the very thing I can't do, Jesus, we need to just believe that God's Word is his enabling, have that faith, and just proceed that way. 
And so the reward of God, it has within it the empowering you need to remain steady rather than be shaken in tribulations. And then we have the example of the saints as an aid in verses 14 on. It says, For you, brethren, you became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, the Judean countrymen Paul referred to were Jews. Most of the persecution that dogged Paul's missionary journeys came either directly or indirectly from the Jews. Sadly, the Jews had a long history of religious persecution. They had for centuries killed their own prophets and had recently killed the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul's not being anti-Semitic. He's not bigoted or prejudiced. This was a simple statement of fact. When he said the Jews killed the Lord Jesus, not to exclude the Romans who put him to death, nor is it to exclude the entire human race who, in a sense, put him to death and for whom he died on the cross. He's just stating uh, the historical facts. Paul said that the Jews were filling up the measure of their sins, but their wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. There's a lot of end times prophecy in that statement. Having rejected Jesus as their promised Messiah, God temporarily set aside the nation of Israel for discipline. Their discipline included the destruction of their temple and the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Their discipline continues today, even though they're back in the land, they're back there in unbelief, and they're on the verge of the Great Tribulation. That's the next big event in the history of uh, Israel. Uh, and, and that will be a time of Jacob's trouble when God continues his discipline of Israel. Uh, and um, so, big statement about what is happening historically. When Jesus returns to earth at the end of the Tribulation, all Israel is going to be saved as they look upon him whom they pierced and accept Jesus as their Messiah. In the meantime, Jews who became Christians were persecuted by their own countrymen, their fellow Jews. Most of the believers in Thessalonica were Gentiles, and they were being persecuted by their own countrymen, fellow Gentiles. The point of all this is that the Thessalonians were imitators of the example of the saints who came before them and the example of suffering persecution for the sake of the gospel. It sounds weird, but believers are to rejoice when we are persecuted because we are being treated just like the saints that preceded us and just like our Lord Jesus Christ. At one point, at least in the book of Acts, after having been beaten and warned never to speak again about Jesus, the disciples are described as, I quote, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so they had an attitude that they were continuing in a long line of suffering, uh, you know, for the sake of their faith in the Lord. Your afflictions, especially if they are persecutions because you're a believer, they put you in the very best company among the greatest people the world has ever seen. They're described in the book of Hebrews by saying, of whom the world was not worthy. That's a pretty powerful statement under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to list those heroes and heroines of the faith, uh, most of whom we know nothing about throughout the ages, 
and then to say that the world was not worthy of them. The world that overwhelmed them and killed them and, and seemed to have victory over them was never worthy of them. Kirk Douglas starred as Spartacus, the gladiator who led other gladiators in a revolt against Rome in the movie of the same name. It's an ancient movie back in the, I don't know, must be 50s or 60s, right, Spartacus? You might remember the film's ending. All the gladiators are captured and are being put to death. The Romans say they'll stop it if Spartacus simply identifies himself so they can kill him because he's their ringleader. As he's about to reveal himself, all of the gladiators one by one stand and shout, I'm Spartacus. They gladly identify with him as their suffering leader. And it's a very powerful end to the movie as one by one they say, hey, I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus, saying that I'm one with this individual. It's, in a sense, what we do when we suffer affliction like the saints who have preceded us and like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. We're here to persecute Christians. Yeah, that's me. I'm a Christian. Like all those hundreds of thousands or millions that have come before me and the ones that are going to come after me, uh, I'm a nameless, faceless believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the worst that you can do to me is to kill me. And I gladly uh, accept that because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then the last thing we read here is that you have the expectation of the Savior himself as your aid. In verse 17, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Hindered means to break up or to cut in. You hinder the progress of an army by breaking up the road ahead of them or blowing up the bridge, for example. You hinder the pace of a runner by cutting in front of him, causing him to stumble. Paul had a sense that some of his afflictions were satanic interference. Satan is called the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air who goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Non-believers are said to be taken captive by him to do his will. Not that they're possessed, but that they are in the flow of his kind of thinking and, and way of living, and so he can use them against believers. He is a liar. He is a thief. He is a murderer. He's not alone in this nefarious work. One-third of a vast number of angels joined him in rebelling against God and are now organized in hierarchies of principalities and powers to spread chaos on the earth. They are the rulers of the darkness of this age. They are the hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Gospels describe many of the afflictions and sufferings people faced as directly connected to the devil or his demons. Jesus spent a great deal of time exercising demons from people or healing them of demonically caused afflictions and diseases. The conclusion you have to come to from reading the New Testament is that there is most definitely a war going on, a spiritual war. Its ultimate end is the elimination of Satan and his demons. First, at the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth, the devil and his demons will be cast into the abyss. They'll be incarcerated for the thousand years that the kingdom uh, is on the earth. But then after the 1,000 years, the devil and presumably his demons will be released. 
They'll lead a failed rebellion, and they'll be cast alive into the lake of fire, which was created especially for their punishment, and then they will be off the scene forever. We live in the meantime, and God is allowing Satan a limited influence to hinder us. Now, in my mind, God's limits and permissions are always too liberal. I freely admit that suffering in our world bothers me. I, I don't understand God's limit. I, there's some trials I can understand, and, and you too. You, you understand some of your trials. You think, oh, I see, you know, what the Lord is doing, and oh, thank you, Lord, for this lesson. You know, what a great lesson. Now it's over, so let's move on and get back to a, kind of a normal life. There's this little blip in my life, and, uh, you know, my, my car battery died, and, you know, so the Lord is teaching me patience, and you know, Lord, oh, thank you for that trial, Lord, that, that moment of suffering that just almost ruined my life. But, you know, I appreciate that. I remember the first Bible study I ever really heard at Calvary Riverside was Pastor Romaine, Chuck Smith's former assistant pastor. And he did a whole thing about how you think you have joy, you, you think you're a Christian, then how come you get upset when your car battery is dead? What, you know, I mean, it, it basically was saying the smallest thing sets us off. But I think sometimes we think, well, it's these, you know, series of small things that you're doing, Lord, to really, really teach me, you know. But all of us, have, you know, especially as you get older, you face greater and more severe suffering and affliction. You, you, you become more sensitive to it in the world around you and in the people around you. And some of the things, don't, they don't have such easy answers. Uh, you, you become a person or you know people who... Suffering becomes what they're going to do for the rest of their life. They're afflicted, and God chooses not to heal them, and they continue to suffer. And so I always struggle with the permission of God and the limits of God. Why does God permit some things but prohibit other things? I usually frame it biblically as the James-Peter problem. James was arrested, you'll remember, at the beginning of the book of Acts, and he was beheaded. Peter was arrested immediately after him because the Roman authorities saw that it pleased the Jews to cut the head off of James, and they planned to behead him. But an angel was dispatched to release him from prison, and he was miraculously set free to live a much longer life, only to be crucified at the end upside down. Why? Why was James beheaded and not Peter? Why not free James and behead Peter? There's no way to answer that question this side of eternity. In a sense, it doesn't matter why, in a, in a big theological sense, because Paul would later explain that it was better to die, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He said, if I don't die, I'm, I'm just going to serve the Lord. I'm going to dedicate my life to serving Him as his soldier. So either way, you know, I'd rather, Paul, I think, basically was saying, I'd rather just go home, go to heaven. I'm ready for that. But if not, I'll just serve the Lord. If I go home, I'm absent from the body and present with the Lord. In the meantime, you do what you will. You want to stone me? You want to put me in prison? You want to keep me in prison for years and years and years on my way to Rome? I, it, you know, uh, that's none of my business. I'm the prisoner of the Lord. A few weeks ago, I used the illustration of the Normandy invasion of World War II in this vein. Everyone understands it was an absolutely brilliant strategy and that it was necessary in order for the Allied forces to win that war. 
But the commanders knew going in that there would be heavy casualties, both military and civilian. They proceeded from the position that the losses would be acceptable for the gain. Since we are in a very real spiritual warfare, we can expect losses. But in our case, all losses are gains because we are always more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And remember, too, that the weapons and strategies of our warfare, they're never to be fleshly, but they're always to be spiritual. We win by exhibiting things like meekness and gentleness and kindness and forgiveness and the like. We win the way Jesus won. Where was Jesus' greatest victory? It was on the cross when he died for the sins of the world. And then, of course, he rose from the dead. But his victory on the cross, being crucified, and we win daily by being crucified, by bearing his cross and following him. Do we not consider martyrdom a great victory? I mean, separate from, you know, just if, if I were to ask you, just, you know, man on the street kind of thing came up and say, do you think martyrdom is a victory or a defeat? Well, it's victory all the way. You think Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian era, while the stones are pelting his body, he's praying for his persecutors and he sees heaven open up and the face is glowing like an angel. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you marvel at the stories of saints giving their lives. And you read about Roman soldiers who saw the testimony of the martyrs on their way to be killed and who became Christians during the march and laid down their arms and followed them and allowed themselves to be killed by their fellow soldiers. It, and so you think, man, that's victory. As long as it doesn't come into my life. When it comes into my life, it seems like a defeat. I, 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 I don't like it. It's okay. We just need to shake it off and realize that we have to have a bigger perspective and, and a bigger understanding of what God is doing. We can't possibly know all of the connections and interweavings of what God is doing. Now, we try. We want to. You understand we want to. I want to say this carefully because I don't want to offend anybody, but I've noticed, this is something I've noticed, and if I offend you, please let me know afterwards. Uh, let me just do a blanket apology right now. I've, please forgive me for what I'm about to say. But I've noticed that it's very important in our culture today if there's some tragedy for people immediately to, to, to establish something good that comes out of that tragedy. There has to be a fund or a foundation or a movement or something. And some of those are very good. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But our normal way of thinking is, if X happens, then Y must be the, core, the, the immediate result. So if I, if I get cancer, then I have to see the immediate reality of what my cancer did. I, I have to see people get saved at my funeral. Or, or some, some, you know, there, there has to be this, otherwise I don't see the value in it. And I think sometimes we're just short-sighted. I can't always see the value in my suffering even in my lifetime. There's a, a much bigger, broader perspective. Just like any military incursion, any of you guys that have been in or in the military can say that, you know, things that happen, you know, way earlier then the D-Day invasion set up what went on, and thousands of people died uh, just building up to the D-Day invasion. Gene and I were talking about some of these little pieces of land and small islands that you, you've got to have this 
in order to move on to the next thing, and, and yet the thing itself is, is like, you know, it's like some outpost somewhere that no one really cares about. And so God has a, a huge scheme. There's a big warfare going on. It's a very real warfare, and there's no way that we can be defeated. Our enemy's already been defeated, but he's allowed to do terrible things for reasons that we don't always understand, but there is no way that he can defeat us unless we yield to him, unless we give in, unless we allow ourselves to be defeated. Let's finish up in verses 19 and 20. It says, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ as is coming? For you are our glory and joy. <clears throat> the, every, every chapter in First Thessalonians ends with some prediction about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to resurrect and rapture the church. They were a, uh, I call the Thessalonian church the first Calvary chapel in the Bible because they, all Paul ever talked to them about was the rapture of the church. It's fantastic. Now, the Thessalonians were aided in their afflictions by the expectation of seeing Jesus. The presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming is a reference to the resurrection and rapture of the church. The believers of the church age will be caught up to heaven, resurrected if you're dead, raptured if you're still alive. Then you'll be rewarded by Jesus and you'll be reunited with your believing loved ones. will be a scene of incredible rejoicing. Sometimes your afflictions or the afflictions of others or those in the world are so severe that the expectation of seeing Jesus is all that you really have left. But that is always enough. I mentioned Stephen earlier, the first Christian martyr. It epitomizes this for us. As his body being stoned to death, he saw Jesus. And it was, if you were to be able to, you know, ask Stephen, you will be in heaven, but if you say, Stephen, was that enough? Was it enough for you to have your life cut short and to see Jesus as his martyr? You and I know what he would say. He would say yes. And so Jesus must be enough for us as well. 